Hebrews chapter 3. As we continue our journey through this amazing book, it's so great to walk through so slowly, to dig so deep, and even if we spend 20 years in this book, we'll never exhaust it all. Um, so thankful for that. We're actually going to change things up here and cover six verses today, so there you go. Um, six verses, Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. Let's read that together. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence, and our boasting in our hope. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you humbly, knowing our debt of sin, knowing our rebellion, and even we come before you weary of battling that sin in ourselves and in our world. And we come to you and your word for hope. We know that you offer it to us through your word here and through your living word, your son. So help us set our minds on him today. Help us consider Jesus to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to be built up in the faith and equipped for every good work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's always interesting to me which songs and which hymns seem to stick around for a long time. Now, some of them stick around for years, and some of them just die off after a short time. And, and to be honest, some of them kind of need to die off, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, really, it's based on the words or the, uh, the tune or, or the hand motions or whatever they were. Um, I actually have an image in my head right now of Chad seeing an interpretive dance to This Is the Air I Breathe in high school. Um, it's haunted me for years. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad that some of them die off, but um, I'm also very thankful that some of them stick around. Uh, there's one in him in particular that has stuck around for um, almost 275 years. And it was the hymn that we just sang, Come Thou Fount. I love the hymn for lots of reasons, but, but I'm convinced that the reason it stuck around for so long is because of one line. You know what line I'm talking about? You do know the line. I see some of you guys mouthing it. Yeah, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to, to that struggle, to our, our fallen tendency, even as Christians, to want to walk away from our Lord, 
to want to drift, to, to grow in hardness and coldness towards the God that we love? Did you notice that? It's not prone to leave the God I hate. Prone to leave the God I love. Think of the insanity of that. The insanity of our sin. And it's so important for us as Christians and as the church to drop our guards and our pretenses that might give off the impression that we don't struggle. That we don't have doubts. That we don't have a sin problem. I wish that we could just get away from this idea that the Christian life has anything to do with ease. That church is where you come when you've got your act together. Where you come when you've figured it all out. And don't get me wrong, the Christian life is the most wonderful, life-giving life that you could commit to. But it's not easy. This side of heaven. Because when you become a Christian, you don't just enter into a family, you enter into an army. You don't just enter into God's kingdom, you enter into a war. And I'm sure there are people here this morning with battle scars. If that's you, if you're walking with the Lord for any length of time, I'm sure you can relate to that struggle. And if you're weary, as we just sang, heavy laden, broken, by your own sinfulness and this broken and fallen world, you're in the right place this morning. Because God's Word, especially in the book of Hebrews, gives us hope, gives us peace, and even exhorts us to look to the one that will always give us hope and peace in this world. And that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this book, if you remember, has been written to Hebrew Christians that were growing weary by persecution, that were growing tired of following Jesus, and who are thinking about throwing in the towel. They started to wonder if this, this Christian life is even worth it all in the end. And they even started to think that they could go back to the outmoded ways of approaching God. To the Mosaic law and the ceremonies and the temple and, and all the things that came before. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is, is so patient. And so wise and so pastoral as he says, don't go back to those empty shadows. Don't turn away from your Lord. I promise Jesus is worth it. Hold fast to Him. Fix your eyes on Him. Because that is the truth of the Christian life. It's not easy, but it's worth it. It's glorious in the end. And at this point in the book, we've seen the writer of Hebrews basically do that systematically through three chapters. Two mostly. And we've seen him basically take everything that the Jews hold dear and to hold it up and say, this right here is inferior to Christ. Christ is more glorious than anything that you've seen before. And even these things that you hold so dear, they actually point to him. They actually help us understand him better. And so in chapter 1, we see that Jesus is superior to the prophets. The prophets spoke the word of God for God. Jesus spoke the word of God as God. As the Son, as the Creator. He's the last and final revelation because He is God Himself. And then in chapter 2, we see that Jesus is actually better than the angels. The angels just take messages into the world, and Jesus is the message. He is the one to come to take on human flesh Himself so that He might redeem those that have been broken by the fall. And He did that to satisfy God's wrath and make atonement for our sins. So he's better than the prophets, he's better than angels, and in this chapter, chapter 3, 
we will see today that he is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. So again, this week, as we did last week, we are going to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Part 2. Which, it's more like part 20 at this point, right? Because that's all the book of Hebrews is about. Consider Jesus. Fix your mind, your gaze, your affections on Him. And this week especially, we are considering Jesus over Moses. Considering Jesus over Moses. And as we go through this text, I want to answer three questions as we wrestle through these things. The first question is this. Why does the author compare Moses and Jesus? Why does he even make that comparison? I thought Moses could be lumped in with all the prophets beforehand. So why would he single him out? And number two is, how is Jesus better than Moses? And then lastly, why should we, as 21st century Gentile Christians, consider Jesus over Moses? So that's where we're going this morning. Why Moses? Why does he pick Moses to single out? How is Jesus greater than Moses? And why should we care? That's what I'm hoping to answer through this text this morning. And the first one, why does the author choose Moses to single out and to compare here? We have to go back to verse 1, which we covered last week, to get that answer. So go with me to verse 1 in chapter 3, which says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Oh, we get the pastoral heart of this writer as he's encouraging these struggling Christians. He reminds them that they're holy brothers in Christ and that they have a heavenly calling and they've been given that not because they've earned it, but because Christ has paid for it. Christ has purchased it for them and that happened just in chapter 2. He started talking about that. And now he reminds them to consider Jesus, to live out that heavenly calling. And he's so gracious because he says, consider Jesus, and then he shows them how to do it. Isn't that beautiful? Consider Jesus. Fix your minds on him. And let me show you and model that for you as we consider Jesus and Moses. And that's exactly what the rest of these verses will do. And we already began that process last week. Look at the end of verse 1. When it says that Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now those words are loaded with meaning. Big time. And if you missed Jason's sermon last week, he beautifully unpacked those ideas for us. So I encourage you to go listen to that. And you will hear many more sermons on that in the book of Hebrews to come as well. But today I want to refer to one idea there that those two words bring. An apostle is someone who is sent by God. They go from God to the people with a job or a message. And a high priest goes from the people and represents the people toward God. Now, I hope you can see that those are mirror images of each other, right? One going from God to the people and one going from the people to God. So essentially what we're describing here is a mediator, a go-between, one who stands in that gap between God and man to make reconciliation and bring that relationship together. And it's saying that Jesus is that mediator. He's the apostle. He's the high priest of our confession. And he doesn't just say that. Look at verse 2 who was faithful to him who appointed him. Who appointed Jesus? Well, that's the Father. He's faithful to God. So what we have here is a mediator, a high priest, an apostle, one who is faithful to God in all of his ways, the faithful servant. And our 21st century minds go right to Jesus. And they should. The Hebrews 
The writer of the Hebrews wants us to go there. But for a first century Jew, they also go somewhere else. Their mind might go to Moses. Actually, more than likely would probably go to Moses. Because to most Jews, Moses is the apostle and high priest of the Old Testament. Moses is the closest thing they've ever had to a Messiah. And he's probably one of the greatest Old Testament figures, even greater than Abraham and David. I'm sure many of you don't believe me, so let me prove it to you. Turn to Deuteronomy 34. Keep your finger in Hebrews 30, excuse me, 3. Turn to Deuteronomy 34. I want to show you that Moses is considered to be an apostle. Not just Jesus, but Moses is considered to be an apostle. And we, we probably already get this on a, on a level, don't we? Because we know the story of Moses. We've heard it in Sunday school. I even quizzed my kids on it last week, and they were telling me things about Moses, which was great to hear. But if you remember the story of Moses, is Moses was miraculously saved from child um, from when he was born, right? Pulled right out of the river, raised in the house of Pharaoh. Struggled with his identity for a while, but when we get to Exodus 3, he meets God in a burning bush. God calls him out of his life and says, Moses, I have a job for you. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh to free my people from slavery. And it's at that moment he becomes God's apostle. He becomes the one sent by God with a job to free God's people. And we know the rest of the story, right? The plagues and the Red Sea and destruction of Pharaoh's army. We all saw Prince of Egypt, right, a long time ago. Uh, That's really the story. And so Moses is this great savior, pulls the people out of slavery, but he's not done. Moses' apostleship wasn't just to free the people. Moses was meant to go to the people on behalf of God as a pastor, walking with the same congregation for 40 years in the desert. Be tough there. And not just a pastor, but a prophet. I mean, think about it. It was Moses. Moses is the one that wrote the first five books of the Bible. Laid the very foundation for God's word for all time. It was Moses is the one who went up the mountain, got the tablets, the Ten Commandments, and bringing God's revelation down to the people. It was Moses who was God's mouthpiece to pronounce the blessings and the cursings of the covenant that would become the very foundation for redemptive history. And it was Moses who got to see the glory of God, speak to God face to face, as Exodus says. God knew Moses, and Moses was his apostle, his mediator, his prophet. And that's what we see at the end of Deuteronomy. Hopefully you're still there. Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. This is Moses' epitaph. This is what would go on his tombstone. Listen to how God describes him. 34.10, Deuteronomy 34.10. And there has not risen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him in all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to his land. Did you catch that there? God sent him. He's the prophet. He speaks the words of God. He knew God face to face, and he would carry that message to the people. Moses is an apostle, but he's also a high priest. Turn to Exodus 32. 
a few books back, Exodus 32. I'm sure many of you were probably like, okay, I'll give it to you. Apostles sent one, yeah, that's a little loose definition, but I'll take it. But high priest, come on. I mean, think about it. Wasn't, wasn't Aaron the high priest? Moses' brother, he, he officially had that title. So how can Moses be the high priest? doesn't make sense. But in Psalm 99, it describes both Moses and Aaron as priests. And Moses and Aaron are both from the tribe of Levi, the, the priestly tribe. And most of the time, even though Aaron bears the title of high priest, most of the time Moses is doing the work of the high priest in a lot of places. And here's one such place in Exodus 32. Now this is the passage I briefly mentioned earlier where Moses has been communing with God on the mountain. He received the revelation of God and then he goes down the hill after this glorious experience with God. And what does he see? He sees the people of God in this this pagan orgy, this disgrace, and this idol worship. And he sees Aaron, the high priest, who has the the worst possible excuse in the world. We just just threw gold in here and a calf popped out. Sounds like something my four-year-old would say. The high priest, who's supposed to be helping the people commune with God, is leading them into idolatry. It's no wonder Moses has righteous, godly anger and breaks the tablets, grounds it up and makes them eat it. Remember that? We remember those moments, but do you remember how God responds to this? Let's see, verse 9. Exodus 32, verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Moses, get out of my way. I'm going to blow them up. I'll take you. I'll start over with you. But they're done. It's essentially what he says here. And Moses, coming down off the mountain in this apostolic role, sent by God with the revelation of God, shifts gears and takes on a different hat and becomes the high priest. Look what Moses does. But Moses implored the God, the Lord his God. He interceded for them and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did you bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. In all this land that I have promised, I will give you to your offspring and you shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. See what Moses did? He goes before God on behalf of the people, pleading not on their righteousness, but on God's holiness and his covenant and his character. And God relents. Moses is the high priest. And this isn't the the first time he's done this. If we go to Numbers 12, you don't have to turn there. When the Israelites came up to the promised land, they went in to scope it out to see what what was going on. They came back and all but two said, you know what, this is not going to work. Those guys are just way too tall. 
That's a weird excuse, right? Another weird excuse. Way too tall. They're too big. It doesn't matter that God wiped out the entire Egyptian army just weeks ago. These guys are just too much to handle. And God's wrath burned towards them, and Moses interceded. Moses prayed for them. And in Exodus 17, when the Israelites were battling the Amalekites, Moses was lifting up his hands, praying for God's people, interceding for them again. And as his hands started to droop when he got tired, they started to lose the battle. So what does Aaron, the high priest, do? He lifts up Moses' arms. This beautiful picture of supporting Moses' high priestly role. And don't forget, the first person to sacrifice in the tabernacle was not Aaron. It was Moses. Because Moses is the apostle and the high priest of the Old Testament. Turn back to the book of Hebrews. Please still have your finger there. So we hear apostle, high priest of our confession, faithful to God. We run to Jesus. A Jew might run to Moses. And to acknowledge that, look what the writer of the the book of Hebrews does. At the end of verse 2. We'll start in the beginning of verse 2. Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now, we may not know this, but this is a direct quote of Numbers 12. This tribute that God gives to Moses and says, you know, Moses had issues, he had problems, but he was a faithful apostle and high priest in all my house. And this metaphor of house that the writer of this book is going to use over and over again. And that house is the household of God. The people of God. Saying Moses is the Hebrew of Hebrews. He's giving tribute to Moses here. Which is such a a kind thing to do to these struggling Jews, isn't it? I can see why you want to run back to him. He's a great man. He was faithful. God used him. And he holds Moses up. And he holds Jesus up right next to him. He doesn't do like we so often do. When we want to lift somebody up, we put the other one down. Right? Like, I'm a Dodgers fan, and everybody says, Dodgers stink. And they're like, come on, they're a professional team at least, right? So we, we do that all the time. We want to put the other one down to lift the other one up. But the writer doesn't do that. He lifts Moses up and says, look at these two men. Look at their roles. They were apostles, high priests. They were faithful to God. God used them powerfully. And look how similar they are, and then let me show you how different they are. And that's where he goes next. It's kind of this compare and contrast and this beautiful tribute to Moses. So I hope you can see why Moses was set apart. There's nobody like Moses in the Old Testament. Nobody that would even come close to Jesus in a comparison. So the writer lifts Moses up next to Jesus, and then now he's going to talk about how Jesus is better than Moses. Verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now this is his claim. This is his main conclusion. And the rest of the passage is his argument to support that claim. Jesus deserves more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Did you catch that argument? It's actually just a a true truism kind of statement. Just a statement of fact. That who has more glory, the builder, the architect, or the house? I hope that's an easy question, right? It's not like an SAT question or anything like that. The, the builder, of course, deserves the more glory. It was his idea, his hands that made the house. If he wanted to, he could make a new house. 
or improve on that house. Of course, the builder deserves more honor, more honor and glory and praise than the house itself. And if you love the house, you'll love the builder. There are so many things like this in our world. I mean, think about it. Who deserves more honor? The artist or their artwork? The teacher who trains the student or the student? Right? The product or the producer? This is the way our world works, right? And that's the idea that the writer is trying to pull out here. The creature and the creation never trumps the army or the honor of the creator. The creator always gets more honor than the creature and the creation. And Moses, as it says, is a servant in God's house, part of God's house. But Jesus built God's house. Jesus built God's house. He's the designer. He's the architect, the creator. Moses is important. He's used by God. But he, at the end of the day, he's the servant, not the creator, the architect. And the writer of Hebrews pushes it even further. Look at verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. You might read that and think, well, that seems a little unnecessary or duh. I mean, didn't the Bible start like that? Moses is the one who wrote that, right? But do you see what's happening here? This is a, a logical syllogism. It's an argument that the writer's trying to lay out, and it basically goes like this. Jesus built the house of God, the people of God. Jesus did that. God is the builder of all things, like his house. Therefore, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Which means there is no builder above Christ. No one built Christ. No architect above him. No designer above him. He is it. As we've seen already in the book of Hebrews, he's the creator of all things. And while Moses is worthy of honor, Jesus is so much more. Because he is the creator God of this universe. And do you see what the writer's doing? How could you go back to Moses when you have Moses' maker? How could you settle for the creation when you have the creator? Consider Jesus, the builder of the house, the author of faith, even of Moses and of us. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, but that's not where he stops. See, the first argument you might have noticed is that Jesus is greater than Moses because of his person, because of who he is. He's God. He's the builder of the house. The creator of all things. But the second argument, he's going to prove that Jesus is greater than Moses in his office, in his job, in his role in God's house. And that starts in verse 5. Let's read that together. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. I hope you can see the argument here. Moses was a servant, but Jesus is the son. The writer again pays tribute to Moses. This word servant is not like it normally is in the New Testament, which usually means slave. This is a different word. Actually more like overseer, head of household in, in a weird way, manager. Moses is given tribute here, but Jesus is the son of the house. 
He's over the house. In fact, that's where the argument really kind of shows up is in the prepositions, these glorious little prepositions. That's the way the Bible works, right? These massive truths hang on these little bitty words. That's why language is so important. But look at verse 5 again. Look what it says about Moses. Moses was faithful in, in God's house. In verse 6, Jesus was faithful over God's house. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a big difference right there. Jesus is the son. He manages the house. He's over the house. It's his inheritance. It's his house to care for and provide for and to tend. And the managers of the house, the servants in the house, report to him. They get their jobs, their recognition from him. At the end of the day, they're just serving, taking care of the the house, but they don't own anything. Jesus is the owner, the builder of the house, the one who's over all of it. And what's beautiful here, we actually get the job description of Moses. The job that that God gave him through all of his ministry. We get it right here in verse 5. Did you notice that? Verse 5, like the end of verse 5. To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Hope you see, Moses was an apostle, a high priest, a faithful servant who obeyed God and honored God, but all of those roles was pointing to something else. He was testifying to the things to come. And Moses, in all of his glory and in all of his greatness, was merely a sign, a shadow of something greater than him. He was the setup man, the, the forerunner, the pregame show, if you will. But what is he pointing to? What's, what's the things that are to come? Well, actually, Jesus helps us with this, doesn't he? In Luke 24. Turn there briefly. Keep your finger in Hebrews. Luke 24. I love this story. This is Jesus on the road to Emmaus. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels. And Jesus approaches these weary disciples who are burdened that the Messiah had just died. And it's Easter Sunday. He's risen again. He's back. But by a miraculous event, they don't recognize him. They don't know who he is. And Jesus comes alongside of them in their pain and their suffering, and he encourages them in the most unlikely way. Listen to what he says. Luke 24, verse 25. And he, Jesus said to them, these are his disciples, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And what you should expect was, and I'm here. I'm glorious. Look at me. I'm alive. I'm back. No more tears. Let's get to work. Let's do this. No more pain. It's all been true. It's all revealed. I'm here. But what does Jesus do? He has a Bible study. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Oh, do you see Moses whole job in all of his apostolic and high priestly ministry was to reveal Jesus. 
was to point to him, to help others consider Jesus. When he wrote the first five books of the Bible, everything he spoke as a prophet, everything he did among the people of God was to give honor and glory to Christ. He was a picture and a type of the things that were to come. He was an apostle and a high priest and a servant to God who faithfully fulfilled what God wanted because he wanted to show the people what that would look like when Jesus showed up. He did all those things to point to him. That's his whole job. So that Jesus will be seen as their great hope, their high priest, their apostle. Hope you can see what the the writer is driving at here. In Hebrews, you can turn back to Hebrews 3. He's saying Moses is an apostle. He's a high priest. He's a faithful man of God, but at the end of the day, he's a servant. And he may be like Jesus in some way, but he's radically different because Jesus is the son of the house. He's the builder of the house. He's the one over the house, caring for the house. And while Moses is a servant, his entire job was to point to Jesus. That's his whole job description, was to point to Jesus. And it's so sad to think that these Jews... These Jewish Christians might think, you know what? We can just go back to the house of Moses. What if you realize that Moses and Jesus are in the same house? It's one people of God. One household that God is the overseer of. And that Christ is the head of. So to abandon Jesus is to abandon Moses. That's the point he's trying to get across here. You can't walk away from Jesus. You do that, you walk away from everything. There is no hope apart from him. Where else can we go? In heaven and on earth, besides Christ. He alone is our hope. And no matter how bad persecution gets, Jesus is our only hope. Well, then what does that mean for us? As modern-day Gentile Christians, what does this consider Jesus over Moses even mean to us? Now, to be completely honest with you, there's not one time in my life where I've ever been tempted to trade Jesus for Moses. Not once. Not even one time in my life where I considered that they were even in the same category. And I'll bet I'm not alone there. But many of us can kind of see this comparison and think, that's a little bit strange. Maybe that was for those Jews and not for us. Let's test that a bit, shall we? See if this comparison even matters. When you struggle, when you wrestle with difficulties and tribulations and trials in this world, when, when Christ doesn't seem enough for you, Where do you run? Where do you find hope and peace and joy when there's no joy inward or outward? Do you run to distractions? Ways to either numb the pain or or help you forget about your sin? Maybe those are familiar things like family and friends and events, recreation, so many things that, that maybe fill your time but never alleviate the struggles, the pain, the weariness. Never really fix the problem. They just help you forget it or mask it. Or do you run to law, to methodology? Do you start to think, well, I'm struggling right now because I'm just not doing enough. I'm not doing it right. If only I can figure out the right system, the best organizational system, or to memorize the right verses, then I will be fixed. Or if only I had a little bit more education, if I knew a little bit more about the Word, about how the way things work, about my own heart and my ego and soul and everything else, then I will be fixed. 
We run to those methods like they'll solve everything. Or do you run to people for comfort? They could be good people. Moses was a great man. Pastors, mentors, parents, friends. And you think that, you know what, if I just get connected with the right person, they'll fix me. They'll figure it out. If I just get the right advice, then this problem will be over with. I'll see relief. Even though you know deep down in your heart that the greatest servants, even in God's kingdom, are not saviors. There's only one savior. And I hope you noticed as I made that list that every single one of those things was exactly what Moses represented to the people of God back then. We may not run to Moses, but we run to everything that Moses stands for, for these people. So what do we do? When we think that every single one of our problems can be solved with more time, more education, more money, more government programs, more mentoring, or more therapy. We think that the solution has to come outside of us outside of God himself intervening in this world because we believe the lie in the garden that God's a miser. That he's not looking out for us. That he doesn't have our best interests in mind, so you have to go fix things for yourself. We run to everything else in this world that is not a solution, that is not a savior, that doesn't fix our deepest need, which is reconciliation with God. So what do we do in that weariness and brokenness? Well, we keep reading. Verse 6, the second part. And we, oh, please notice that we there. We don't know exactly who this writer is, but he includes himself with these struggling Christians. Isn't that beautiful? And we are his house, Christ's house. We're his people. We're his sheep. If, a lot of people probably wish there was a period after house. If, if indeed we hold fast our confidence in our boasting in our hope. I know we don't like ifs. We like to check the Christian box and think, you know what, I've got it. I've said the prayer, I've been baptized, I've checked it off my list, I'm good to go. That's not the way the Bible presents Christianity. Surely we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the only way of salvation. But the evidence, the picture of that salvation, the way we know it's happening in our own life, that God is saving us, is by perseverance. By holding fast our confidence and our boast and our hope. And I hope you recognize those words. Because so far they've been in every single chapter of Hebrews. He's just telling us once again, consider Jesus. Don't drift. Don't drift to maybe even godly leaders and think of them as your Savior. Don't drift to the things of this world, the laws, the customs. Don't drift to the things that can distract you and numb the pain, can turn you away from God. Know your proneness to wonder and look to Christ, the author of our faith the builder of the house, the son over the house. He is the true apostle. He is the true high priest. He is the faithful man of God who is not just faithful in giving us the word. He is the word. Lived the life we could not live. Went to the cross, paid for sin in our place so that we might be reconciled to God. 
so that we might have peace with God and peace with Him for all of eternity. To be adopted and forgiven and brought into the family of God. Be united with the people of God so that we might persevere and lift Christ up together. And that's exactly where we're going next week. So we consider Jesus in our weakness and our brokenness. Consider Jesus. He will never disappoint. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a gift it is to have your word. To know your son. To know how faithful you've been to your people. And not just showing us the way, but giving us the way. And how you've set Moses apart as this wonderful servant and apostle and high priest pointing directly to Christ who is the ultimate servant, apostle, and high priest. Everything we possibly needed and we didn't deserve. Father, help us to glory in Him. Help us to look long in the face of Christ to be strengthened and encouraged that He was enough to pay for our sins and to reconcile us with You. And let that embolden us to go and preach that Gospel so that others may know peace and joy with You. Pray this in His precious name. Amen.